This is Unsupervised Learning, Redpoint's AI podcast. I'm Jacob Efron, and I'm joined by my co-host, Pat Chase. And today we had an awesome episode with Perplexity AI CEO, Arvind Srinivas. Perplexity is an incredible next-gen search product. I highly recommend folks use. It is all the rage on Twitter these days. And the company raised at a reported $500 million valuation in the last months. Arvind is a fascinating perspective on many things in AI. We talked about what it means to have moats in this new world of Gen AI and what he thinks about the pejorative of companies being wrappers around ChatGPT. We talked about uh, the future of search and where that's headed. And he also shared a really poignant example of how he thinks about the future of AI and how it can be used to preserve the memories of loved ones. I think folks are really going to enjoy this episode. You know, most of our listeners have probably used Perplexity. It's an incredible product. Um, and I think the simplicity of the experience when you're using it probably belies a lot of the complexity behind what you've done to yeah. actually make it work. And so what's kind of going on behind the scenes in terms of what's been required to build such a smooth and seamless experience, like the yeah. types of models you built and, and whatnot? Yeah, so I, I, I've been thinking about this and one formal way to answer this question might sound a bit cringy, like 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 management talk, but it's like we, we have like five dimensions we need to really focus on, which is Accuracy, reliability, uh, latency, delightful UX, and it it iteratively improving constantly, either improving for everybody overall or improving for you personally through personalization. So we need all these five dimensions to be really good for the product to be like top of the market, mm-hmm. right? And one in a hundred startups can do one of these things really well. That means like one over hundred to the power of five <laughs> is your probability of doing all five simultaneously really well. But you got to aim for it. Mm-hmm. You got to aim for it. Otherwise, h- how do you create the next like multi-billion dollar, multi-hundred billion dollar company? Totally. Right? So, so when you ask a query, we try to understand the query, we try to reformulate it. We try to know like which pages to use for that query. We try to know which part of the pages that we pick to be used for answering a query. And then like, the answer, how should the answer be rendered? It's a, it's a, sum, it's a summary, but is it just a paragraph or is it like a bunch of bullets or is it like, uh, and, and how should each sentence have a supporting citation? How to minimize the error in like what citations are reflected at the end of each sentence? Mm-hmm. Uh, how to make sure there are no hallucinations? Uh, sometimes for an answer, just text is not enough. Uh, a picture is worth a thousand words. So like sometimes you might want to have images. Okay, then a video is worth tens of thousands of words. And like you put a video that accompanies the result. And then um, how to make sure the final answer is like a shareable entity. Like that was one of the innovations we did. Like, you know, like your query, the answer, the value of the answer is so high that someone else benefits from it without even asking the question. Yeah. So make it shareable. Uh, and so that we introduced the concept of permalinks. And then everyone else like Bing and ChatGPT and Bard followed suit there. And then follow-up questions. After you ask a question, what I want to suggest you follow-ups. Why? Because you don't know exactly how to ask a good question. Mm-hmm. It's actually one of the fundamental human limitations is we're not very good at asking follow-ups. And the reason is because we're all curious. Our curiosity is endless. But there are only few people in the world who know how to articulate their curiosity into precise, clear questions. That's why when somebody gives a talk or a presentation or a keynote, you see a lot of people lining up to ask questions, but you see very few people ask good questions, right? Most questions can be answered with just like an internet search, but only a few questions require like extra level thought. And and so- We, the, we aspire to answer yeah. or to ask very good questions. That's what Pat always tells me about yeah. my questions. But, the, but um... that's also why we introduced this thing called Copilot, uh-huh. where we felt like, okay, look, why do you blame the user for not being a great prompt engineer? Why do you blame the user for not asking the right question? Like sometimes my, my, my mom would be like, this doesn't work. And I, I'll, I'll ask her to send me the report and like other the permalink. And she would send it to me and I would look at the query and like, okay, of course you didn't ask the query the right way. I used to think like that. And then I read this book or, or, or a talk by um, Larry Page. So Larry has this amazing story where he, 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 he was trying to sell Google to, to Excite. They go to a demo, Larry and Sergey, to the Excite CEO, uh, where Larry opens a window, he puff, puff, you know, fires Google as a window and like Excite as another window and, and types in the same query. And Google gets the links so that, and Excite doesn't get it. 
And then Exacio looks at it and it's like, of course you didn't type the query the right way. <laughs> yeah. And then Larry's like, I'm just a user. Like I'm not wrong. Like the user. So that's the philosophy in human totally. computer interaction yeah. is yeah. the user is never wrong. Yeah, I feel like especially for search too, there's a huge footprint of yeah. users and queries that you exactly. need to make people happy for. That's right. Um, and you talked about those kind of the five buckets that you're investing in. Yeah. Um, how do you think about allocating resources between those from an engineering perspective? Because I would imagine there's a lot to be done at the UI layer and yeah. iterating on those workflows. There's also yeah. a lot of uh, at the relevance and modeling layer. That's so right. like, how do you think about what you invest in now versus later? That's right. So... I mean, like the best companies are vertically integrated. If the designer and the product engineers and the backend people are not like working together, talking together, then you're not going to have a great product, right? Mm -hmm. For example, a particular design can help you mine more data from user interactions, mm -hmm. and that can make your AI smarter, and that can make your product better. How would you build something like this unless your designer and the AI lead and like the product lead don't constantly keep talking to each other so we do that we have regular meetings where all of us talk together and we hear it's not like a consensus based decision making by the way we do have opinions strong opinions sometimes it's pretty heated discussions but we try to make sure that every person appreciates the importance of the other aspect like everyone in our company loves good design everyone in our company loves great answers everyone mm -hmm. in our company loves fast products Everyone in our company loves reliable products. And everyone in our company wants the product to keep improving. So the values of the product and the values of the company should be in harmony. So that when I had to come up with culture for the company, like what are the core values, I came up with like quality, uh, truth, velocity as like one of the three values because that exactly reflects our product too. I, you know, one thing that's interesting in kind of perplexity's evolution is you started off, you know, as I understand it, kind of using the off-the-shelf open AI models. And yeah. then, you know, you ended up fine-tuning, you know, some of the smaller and faster models. That's right. And now you've increasingly used open source models and, that's right. and released your own. Like, I think it's a really interesting case study for, obviously, there's a lot of other companies that are maybe a stage or two earlier than you and are thinking through the sequencing of when to build their own models. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe talk about that journey and kind of the, you know, how you think about when the right time is to do some of those things. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I 100% want to, if I were to go back, I would do it exactly the same way. You please start with somebody else's models. If you're mm -hmm. going to, if you if you want to be a product focused company, don't waste your time building your own models. Of course, build a muscle for it. Look, we are lucky that, you know, two of our co-founding team, it's myself and my CTO, I've been former AI researchers. We've basically trained models for like half a decade before starting this company. So we fully understand everything that's needed to train these models. But if you're not that person, it's still okay. You know, like don't don't try to go venture there. In fact, you should be even more product focused than us and try to get a product out and try to make sure it has users and try to make sure they're returning users and try to make sure that sustain usage get through that barrier first. That's like the number one thing. Mm -hmm. Like almost half of your problems are sorted out after that because you'll at least be able to attract some funding. You'll be able to attract other employees. Actually, more than getting funding, the harder part is getting good people. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who want to throw their money in generative AI now. <laughs> Maybe you don't get the top tier investors, but you get the second tier investors and like you, you have some money in the bank, right? Or you go for a lower valuation and get the money in the bank. But getting really, really good engineers is harder than getting some investor to back you. And the second one changes your destiny a lot more. And why would a great engineer who's very sound at judgment and decision-making join you when you don't even have a product that has users? They would join you maybe if you're building infrastructure, but then you're a foundation model company then. If you're a foundation model company, you better raise hundreds of millions of dollars. There's no yeah. way to play this game otherwise, right? And then that creates another set of problems. Like you, you need to hire great AI researchers who know how to train these large models. And in fact, they are more scarce than GPUs today. <laughs> like you can get H200 GPUs, but you cannot get a person who knows how to train GPT-4. Yeah. It's very hard. Like you, you cannot pay them. And like, even if you can pay them, like they're not going to leave the team that knows how to do all the other things, right? Mm -hmm. So really be pragmatic, you know, if you, 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 why did you start a company? You start a company to get a product 
up and running and build a business around it mm -hmm. then try to do that that's your job yeah now why then you can say well, okay you you speak so much why are you going building your models now why are you just not product focused <laughs> yeah right because here's a simple reason like at some point like um you don't want to overly depend on somebody mm -hmm. especially if they're building products in the same space as you are Un until it's very clear it's differentiated so we we want to do that and drive down the cost but we waited we 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 did not make all these decisions randomly mm -hmm. we waited till lama to arrive mm -hmm. we were waiting for, like we knew it's going to happen everyone those rumors lama 1 got leaked in torrent right like we were so we also knew that mistral is going to release a model so we knew it's going to happen yeah so that's like jeff bezos has this amazing quote like you 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 want to wait till the next wave arrives open source was going to be a wave mm -hmm. like just like GPT 3.5 was a wave and like everybody started building on top of it. There was another wave that's coming. Wait for it. And when it comes, like, take good advantage of it. Similarly, NVIDIA's TensorRT library, which is going to make everybody make inference super fast and efficient, was another wave that's waiting to come and we knew it's going to come. And so we got position ourselves well. Yeah. So that's sort of, most of my job is basically that. Like, talk to our leaders in the company and make listen make sure like you know they are able to make great decisions mm -hmm. and give them all the information and input needed yeah to make these decisions yeah it makes sense and so it sounds like you're really in favor of kind of building on the existing models to start and then right. over time iterating on them and uh, i think move fast like move fast, whatever yeah. moves fastest in the beginning <laughs> yeah and i think you've publicly talked about you know um some of these kind of product focused companies being called wrappers on OpenAI right. yeah. uh, or things like that. And it sounds like you're really in favor of starting that way. Yeah. And then like, how do you think about the moat long-term and, and where that comes from? Yeah, so look, you only have a moat, you only have like a right to think about moats when you even have something, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, like- Gotta have something to protect. Yeah. yeah. Like, like you're like, okay, you're, you're a rapper. Yes, I am a rapper. I'm, I'm, but I would rather be a rapper with hundred thousand users than having some model inside and like nobody even knows who I am and like the model might not even matter. Totally. Right. There are so many people who went and built models, and then what's going on now? Like everyone just uses Llama two or Mistral. Everything will consolidate. Right. That's mm -hmm. that's going to be a power law in both the closed proprietary models and the open source models. What is it today? Close, it's OpenAI, Anthropic. That's it. Mm -hmm. I don't have bandwidth for third. Uh, like I, it's already hard to manage like four models within OpenAI, three models within Anthropic. Like, like seven models. And again, in open source, that's going to be Llama 2 mm -hmm. and Mistral, the base models. People will specialize them. But this is where it's consolidating towards. And I don't have space. This is already a lot for me, a lot yeah. of entropy. When you look into the future, do you see yourself on all open source or on a still a mix or? Yeah, so our like? position is we we want to be model agnostic. Uh huh. We want to be model agnostic, but be able to control our destiny if needed. Have the optionality to control our destiny if needed. Mm -hmm. But we want to be in a position where if someone else has a better model than us, then we want to take take it and put it and give it to our users. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, the reason is very simple. Our user doesn't care what model was used to give them the answer. Our user just wants the best answer. Totally. And they don't care about our modes. User doesn't give any thought about what your modes are. Like, user doesn't care if you're profitable. If OpenAI charges you more, they don't care. They want the best answer. So this is something I really took inspiration from Jeff Bezos. But there was an interview where people, he, he was continually asked like why are you working on kindle that's apple's thing ipads are going to be the reading devices why why are you going for these one or two day delivery things like you're going to burn more money you you'd never turn a profit in your whole you know history of amazon and he just gives a simple answer like do you think our users care you know i, I think one thing you've also talked about is how perplexity i think is really good for deep knowledge work today yeah um and I'm curious, one, you know, I feel like you've started to go this way with the discovery feed and, and kind of collections, you know, how you think about what the future of like 
Quora and Wikipedia type products might look like with LLMs yeah. and perplexity. And then also to what extent that's going to be your focus versus, you know, the broader category of searches. Yeah, I've, I've given some thought to this. And I think that um, Quora and Wikipedia were both created to maximize the knowledge of the internet. I think Quora literally took that as their mission statement. But our difference from these two is you want to maximize the knowledge velocity, the IQ velocity, not just the IQ. So they're maximizing delta knowledge. We are maximizing delta knowledge by delta time. Mm. So we're accelerating it more. Now, why is that important? It's important because in Wikipedia, you just have one static article for everybody. There's no personalization. There's no like, if I'm reading about black holes, I might want to read at a high level. Or like, I'm, on, I'm, on, I'm a nerd, I might want to dig deeper. But if I'm reading about some celebrity, I probably just want to know like some high level stats. I'm not going to know every gossip that they had in their life. Someone else might be like the opposite. They might want to know every single gossip some celebrity has had in their life, but might just want to know high level of what is a black hole, right? So it, this example applies when you're reading about like uh, interstellar movie. You might want to know more about the director and the actors, but not much about the physics. And I might want to know more about the physics. So that sort of personalization, that sort of like fast, high bandwidth access to knowledge doesn't exist in Wikipedia. It doesn't exist in Quora either because you ask a question and you have to wait for another human to come back and give you the answer. That's slow. It doesn't maximize the velocity. It only maximizes for the knowledge. So that's what perplexity does now. It, it, it basically has taken the human skill of going and doing your research on the question asked and coming back with a concise, relevant answer, backed by sources. Quora doesn't use sources, but Wikipedia at least does. But does it does this in seconds? What would otherwise take humans hours and hours of curation and work? Now it's going to be super useful. Now, the second part of your question, whether we, we're going to stop there or we're going to like expand, we are not going to stop here. Like the the goal for us is to cater to all of human human curiosity. But again, like I mean, by the way, UBC should love this, right? No, a company should start with a small TAM, a small focus vertical, and then expand. Now, what is vertical and horizontal is all about your focal length of your lens. Mm -hmm. Like in the context of AI chatbots, AI chatbots focused on search is already a vertical. In the context of AI chatbots focused on search, focusing on like knowledge and research work is already a vertical, right? So from that sense, we are a pretty vertical focused company, but everyone who's been talking to me ever since the beginning is like, you're too horizontal, you're too broad, like, right? <laughs> right? So that's something I ask myself a lot. Like, am I like taking a risk here and like not making sure like we are focused on like one word? And, and, and like, I was confused about this and the one person who helped me think through this clearly was Mark Andreessen, mm -hmm. where he told me, look, whatever happens, every VC is gonna tell you to go build a vertical search engine. Don't listen to them. The same thing happened in the late 90s and early 2000s where everybody just told others to go build a Google for a domain. And what ended up happening is most of these companies didn't work. Mm -hmm. And whatever ended up working was building good end-to-end -end experiences for that vertical. Like if you go to booking.com, it's not just about getting the hotels, right? You're able to actually book and finish everything done. Yeah. Same thing with Expedia. So you, you have to like go the extra step. And then if you if you have to go the extra step, you're no longer just a search company. You're a travel company. You are a, like Airbnb is like a travel company, right? So then like what that that then that's basically making a decision of I'm going to pivot to being a travel company. And the mode is not for you in the technology. The mode is in actually the getting mm -hmm. all these people that like put their stuff on your site. And that's a different company. Yeah, it seems like there's been yeah as you mentioned a lot of vertical search companies that have right. um that exactly have so TurboTax Intuit is all like vertical yeah yeah but you have to build that into an experience totally. and are you well positioned do you understand the domain really well do you know like the people around yeah yeah what have you learned from others that have gone after more horizontal search and um what do you think it takes to compete with Google there or why yeah. don't you think there's been kind of a challenger to Google um in you know in the last decade plus yeah um, I think like number one is we got lucky with the timing. I want to admit that right away so that 
I'm not coming across as obnoxious here. Um, that said, the previous people who took on Google, especially former Googlers, not just Neva, but even before them, um, the number one mistake they all made is try to run the Google competitor exactly like Google. Mm-hmm. Like I would go and build a great crawler. I would go build the same kind of indexer. I would go build the same kind of ranker. And I would go to market in the same style. Some of them had some ideas on like, okay, I'm not going to do ads. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do like privacy focus. But all these things are like done and dusted, right? There are like two people who capture the privacy focus search markets, uh, DuckDuckGo and Brave. Mm-hmm. And the, they both had amazing go-to-market. Like DuckDuckGo, like just constantly kept marketing on Quora of how Google is evil. <laughs> and that worked. I saw them on Hacker News a lot too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they did it on every platform. That worked. But the good thing they did is they obsessed about go-to-market and market positioning and branding versus actually building technology. They took Bing and re, re, resold Bing, right? They were not focused on building. And that that's, that's again goes to the point of like, get to the market ASAP. Understand why users would come to you. Build a browser. So they put their like technology work into building a privacy-focused browser. And now people use it, you know, they are like a huge market. Same thing with Brave. They were like, okay, I want I want to go after privacy. I want to go after Google. I want to go after Chrome and ads. And then like the way they go, went to market is like they built a crypto exchange. They, they have a token. They're like, okay, if you use our browser, you get this token. And like, and then they mined all their search queries and built an index, right? So you got to have some strategy, some clever positioning. And for these two, it was like privacy and crypto. For, for the other people who try to take on Google, like they focus more on technology. That's not enough, especially if you're building the exact same technology that Google has. Because they have done it for 20 years. They're going to do better than you, faster than you, mm-hmm. and you're not never going to be able to compete. And this whole anti-Google marketing has already like been taken. The yeah. privacy, right? You, it, like Not many people care about privacy, but at least those who do have already gone to two, two other yeah. browsers. So that's why I think never worked. AI was a big moment for us. Like, it was a rare failure in Google's history that they were not the number one in AI. Like, would you have predicted that three, four, even two years ago? Would you have predicted that? No way, right? Like, yeah. there's no way Google's like number number two. It was a rare moment when there was another model provider it had an amazing model, and the Google could not match. And they also made it accessible via APIs to others. Yeah. That was rare. That That's yeah. what we took advantage. Makes sense. What do you think search looks like in 10 years? It'll be answers. Answers. That's it. It'll be a- answers. It'll be agents that just do tasks for you. And like, like it's going to be like how you talk to your, like, like other friends. Hey, do you know what? Like, tell me about this thing. Yeah. I, I heard there's something here. Can you tell me more? And it's going to be concise enough that you're not going to feel like, ah, like stop rambling, you know, yeah. enough, T- turn off. Like that's how it feels. That's why we never did voice to voice yet, by the way. It's going to be a ramble. You're going to be like, turn it <laughs> off, <laughs> right? Your, your, your eyes can read the answer faster than your ears can hear. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The, uh, I think, well, chat GPT, they just launched their voice, which has been fun to, to chat yeah. with. Yeah. If, if it's concise, it's fun. Yeah. But if it's like two paragraphs, I don't want to hear. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, it's been interesting. I feel like you've you've recently been busy shipping a bunch of things. Yeah. Um, obviously, you started with your own inference engine for open source models. Um, I think more recently, you released your own models that are fine-tuned on Llama and Mistral, but kind of have updated information and less hallucinations. Like, how have you thought about, you know, the parts of the product that you release beyond just the consumer-facing uh, application? And how does that kind of fit into the perplexity story longer term? Yeah, I mean, the number one thing for us is like, again, you earn the user's trust, right? Like, a lot of users are concerned about using our products simply because they think that we cannot build our own infrastructure. So we are just a wrapper. So at some point, we're going to fizzle out. We're going to run out of money. We don't have any business. So that's that's the number one part that 
we um, want to address. Hey guys, listen, you know, we're, we're not a rapper. We're slowly building our muscle to serve everything ourselves and it starts in simple steps. Number one step is like we at least have models that can rival 3.5 turbo on serving our traffic. And we're going to make it accessible to you for you to test. We're also going to slowly keep shipping into production and you won't notice the difference. Paul Graham has this tweet where the only AI companies that will survive are those where they can ship their own models and the users wouldn't notice. Or if at all they notice, it's going to be an improvement. Hmm. So again, we are also very transparent and clear that we are not at the level of GPT-4. But nobody else is in the market either. That model is so good. I mean, Gemini is delayed <laughs> for that reason, right? Yeah. Like if Google with um, 100x more funding than us, or, or 1,000x maybe, cannot get to GPT-4, like what's our hope? Our hope is that somebody else will launch a great base model, like Llama 3 mm-hmm. or Mistral 2, whatever it is. And we take our data fly wheel and we get even closer to 4. I, I'm still not saying it'll be equal to 4. And so you, t- you fine-tune Llama 3 for search exactly. and then have better performance. And, and, and that's, that's going to be our like, like thing that we can only do the best is get these query reformulators, query understanding, query like interactions in Copilot, like summarization quality, the answer quality, the search index, the better index. All these things will get better that only we can do the best because our traffic volume and our expertise that we have built over the last year. And we... Also, you got to serve your own models. Like, even there, yeah. if you're like, I'm going to fine-tune it with somebody else's GPUs and I'm going to like use fireworks or, um, I don't know, like like any scale or like replicate to like, you know, serve these models, hugging face. You're still going to pay someone else. You're still like not that high margin. You're a rapper some. again. You're a rapper again, exactly. <laughs> you're just a different kind of rapper. Yeah. But you're still a rapper, right? So then you better build an aggregator business that's so different. And the companies like Cora or Poe are trying to do that. Like they're kind of being like the Macy's for AI, right? Like think about it. you go to Macy's, you can get all sorts of clothes in one place. It's pretty cool. And like that, that's a that's a good wrapper business potentially, right? We're not going to try to do that. We want to be a search focused business. And in that case, it, it is important for us to serve our models. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one thing I feel like you've been super effective at it is obviously, you know, using retrieval augmented generation to solve hallucinations. And I think, you know, it's a topic that's top of mind for, I feel like anyone that's building in, yeah. in AI right now, I know you've talked, you know, about potentially providing some of your rag solutions to others. Like what might that look like for you guys? And, and how do you think, like, it's such a problem right now. I think every yeah. enterprise is slowing down implementations yeah. of hallucinations. How does that kind of work itself out over the next few years? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I think this is a very uh, important topic. Uh, a lot of people think that, oh, because we are so good at rack for web search, perplexity will just nail internal search. Mm-hmm. No. It's a two completely different entities. There is a reason why search on Google Drive sucks. Like, would you expect Google, the king of web search, to be so bad? <laughs> They're bad because of a reason. The, the indexing is so different. Yeah. Mm. The embeddings that you got to train are so different. The Not just the embeddings, but even the way you snippet a page, uh, your text retrieval, the elastic index that you're building with tipi- uh, you know, traditional TF-IDF-based like, inverted indexes are so different that you need a company to just obsessively focus on that use case. Just like how we are obsessively focused on the web mm-hmm. search use case. So RAG is going to be pretty hard and there's a lot of work that needs to be done outside of generative AI. It's not just training a large embedding model and you're done. I remember like when OpenAI releases embeddings API, Sam Altman tweeted the next $100 trillion company can just plug into this API and be built. That's not true. It's a good way to market it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? But that's not that's not true at all. And um, sorry, he said $1 trillion. So I think that's why like, I would be very careful when somebody makes claims that they've solved RAG. They probably can do it really well for one use case. Yeah. You know, and, and, and also, there are so many more things to handle in the ranking mm-hmm. that will make the answer really good. Because even though the LLMs are finally the ones that are taking which links to use for the answer, it's not like you can just dump 
garbage into the prompt and it'll just be magically so good that it'll only take the topmost relevant links and the answer and give you the citations with them. Totally. In fact, the more information you throw at these really long context models, the more chances that you have a hallucination at totally. the end. Mm -hmm. So you actually have to do a lot of work in the, in the retrieval component, not just the embeddings, the, the indexing, the embeddings, and the ranking. Ranking should also have a lot of signals outside of just the vector dot products. And 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 um, and then what those signals are really depend on your end, end use case. I love the Copilot product that you guys shipped, where it will help users kind of create their queries. And so, if I'm planning a trip to Kyoto, then it can ask me follow up questions and say, which of these sites do you want to see, and uh, what season do you want to go. How do you think about that kind of approach to iteratively creating prompts versus? It seems like a lot of others have taken this approach of user says something and then we figure everything else out for you. Um, like, which one of those do you think will win in the future? I think like we, we, we don't want users to keep typing a lot. Mm -hmm. Like it's not fun to type a lot. Like we're not all yeah. typing monkeys, right? <laughs> it's not like come ask a question, voice. And also the, the clarifying questions that we are asking in Copilot. It's, it's good. I'm not like, you know, obviously I love our products, but, uh, some people are also pissed off if if you mm. if the AI is like, hey, just get me the answer. Like, why are you constantly just coming back and asking me clarifying questions? I don't want to keep. I already asked the question. Like, yeah. Right? <laughs> so, I think that some something where the sweet spot will only be figured out with iterative deployment. Yeah. We cannot like know in advance what's going what's it going to be, but my guess is it's going to be like the AI magically knows when to clarify and dig deeper. And AI also knows, like, okay, you know what? This user already likes these things. I'm not yeah. going to bother them. And for some questions, the AI just knows every user wants this. Like, I'm not going to bother them. Yeah. And and I think that's the sweet spot we want to hit towards. And also, I hate toggles. Yeah. Like, there should be just one one motor usage in the app, and there should be no need to pick Copilot. It's just all one thing. Yeah. But right now, it's hard to do because some people are like, you know, I, I we tried this. Like, if you pick Copilot as a toggle, then it persists for the next query. Mm -hmm. And then some people told me they hate that. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're like, why do you make force me to use Copilot? I don't want to use Copilot. I know when to use Copilot myself. Like, you don't tell me when to use it. Yeah. So I think it, it all depends on what the user had in mind when they ask a question. Mm -hmm. Some people just come to perplexity because it's like so fast. Yeah, it makes sense. And, and, and like Copilot slows it down for them. And for some people, it's like, you know what? I love Copilot because... I know it's like more or less hardly any hallucination. It's thoroughly done its research. Mm -hmm. I want to be guaranteed that the AI did the work. And they're like, okay, waiting. So like two two kinds of people. Yeah. yeah. Right? This again goes back to like, who do you optimize for? I know. Well, one of my favorite things about your product is this Discover tab that you guys have. And I feel like you've been really leaning into that lately. And there's lots of interesting information to explore. Yeah. I'm curious, what's your favorite thing you've learned through the Perplexity Discover tab? I think I've learned a lot about like, many um actually I, I can't recall the top of my head because I, I usually am the person who also like helps curate these things so most of the times i already know what's going to go so you're, you're the person behind the curtain making uh making the calls <laughs> not not exactly i'm not the only person we have a bunch of people who are like we call them as editors because we scrape a lot of content from the web and we decide like which queries to you know put into i actually learned one thing uh, you know the mom's test? No. Like in software, there's this mom's test of like, you know, like 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 people often don't pass the test of having the average new user understand it. So actually like this led me to query deeper and, and learn a thing where uh, at Facebook, when they were initially figuring out how to grow, uh, there were like two ways to grow. And it's you, you make the product better and better for the existing users. And they're going to bring in more of their friends into the product. And the other way to grow is you make the product so intuitive and so easy for the new user who has never seen your product before. And that's the only way your product keeps growing. And this is a hard decision because it's unclear what to do. And um, they made the decision to optimize for the new visitor. And like find out the magic metric that would convert them to a regular user, which is like how many initial friends that they already know in the real world are there on the Facebook social network already. Yeah. And that's like the greatest predictor of whether that person becomes a retaining user or not. So instead of adding a lot of 
features that your existing users ask, you should always make sure that you're able to get the next set of users that have never seen or used your product before. Yeah. How do you think about that? For I mean, I feel like that's very relevant to the perplexity product today, right? You've got right. probably these power users. I think that's right. all of Twitter seems to love you and, you know, yeah. they're very deep. And I'm sure you guys think a lot about getting the next, you yeah. know, millions of users on. How do you kind of navigate that? 100%. Yeah, that's the hardest challenge for me and for our, our other co-founders who are like constantly thinking about how to improve the product is do we make this, uh, do we just keep, you know, there's this YC mantra of like, go talk to users, uh, hear what they say and just ship what they want. Don't You're not, that's how you make decisions. Now, I think that works when you don't have anything and you're just trying to get the initial product market fit. Uh, but, but when you have like millions of users, uh, obviously they're going to be the power users among them. And they're going to ask, each of them is going to ask for a lot. And you're like, hey, if I don't listen to them, you know, if I don't ship what they want, they're likely to leave my product. They're likely to go and say perplexity doesn't listen to its users. Don't trust these people. And that's going to hurt your brand for the next set of users. Or you're like, look, I have a certain vision for how the product's going to be. I really respect what you're going to say. I really value that you're using my product. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm going to build a product that's going to be a certain set of opinions. You can't do everything that you're asking for. We are trying to find a sweet spot that caters to like a lot of people. We go back and forth here. There's no like one magic sauce. Uh, but one thing is very clear. The more your product becomes so unintuitive to the new user, there's like a lot of things they see when they come onto the landing page, uh, the less likely it is that you're going to actually grow. That, that's been very clear to us. And that's why like sometimes there's always this, oh, this is a free pro like anonymous product, but I want people to be signed in so that they can get more advantage of so many other features. But then when you have so many sign-up modals like blasted at you when you land on the landing page, people are like, yeah, I don't want to use this, right? So even Google's doing that now. Like Google's constantly putting these stay signed in uh, modals when you're like just scrolling down the search result page. So this is a constant challenge. I think the only company that nails this is Apple. Right? Yeah. Like they just optimize for the user. But they have the mode in terms of distribution and lock-in that they can do that. So this is this is why it's challenging to run this company. Totally, totally. And you went through a bunch of different ideas. Um, if I recall, before landing on search and, and perplexity, I think you had a text-to-SQL generation. That's right. And then um, a UI to search Twitter as well. Yeah. Like, How did you ultimately decide to go after yeah. search and uh, kind of perplexity in its uh, incarnation today. Yeah. So if we started the company one year ago and said we are taking on the Google search engine, I'm pretty sure that nobody would have invested in us. Like pretty sure. Investors love to invest in a idea that is so good on paper, but may not even have product market fit. But it's very clearly carved out, strategically clear. There's no competition. It's adjacent. They allow those kind of ideas because it minimizes risk for them. It doesn't necessarily maximize the returns. That's just how you think as an investor. But when you go and say you take on Google, there is hardly any uh, protection. It's either boom or bust, and the probability of boom is like so low, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we obviously did not have that sort of courage either, leave alone what investors are going to say. The first idea I did pitch to Elad Gill who's our Cedron lead, one of the leads is, he said, I said, I, wa I want to take on Google. So how about we do a vision format? Like we have all the glasses, we look around, there's a microphone listening to us, we ask questions and then uh, AirPods will read out the answer. That's the product. And it's like, wow, that sounds too good to on paper, but you're not going to be able to do this right now, <laughs> which is the right advice to give. And he told us, okay, if you're really interested in search, um, you know, why don't you narrow down? Like, what about search over databases? Mm -hmm. Right, that's something that nobody's looking into. And then if you nail it, if you crack it, uh, the, the the risk protection is it has a big enterprise market. Like everybody wants to search over their internal tables, spreadsheets, their Salesforce, their HubSpot, right? Uh, so build that, mm -hmm. and you see where, where it lands. We got something really reliable, and um, and then we went to some enterprises and talked to them. And they were like, you know what, this is cool, but 
what do I do with this? Like, I have all the dashboards I need already on like my HubSpot. Like, I have the revenue, I have the subscriptions, so like I have the, you know, the, the churn and everything done. It's just a one-time work and it's just constantly periodically updated. And then I ask, um, like we had friends from Databricks because one of our co-founders is from Databricks. Mm-hmm. And I ask Reynolds Shin, who's like also an investor and advisor to us, and he's the chief architect of Databricks. Hey, I have this thing. You are, you know, one of the leaders in the SQL market. Now tell me if this is actually useful, right? And he's like, you know what? It's not useful. I'll tell you why. <laughs> um, Nothing like honest feedback from yeah. uh, an 80% of the SQL that makes money is not even written. It's already written. It's already there. It's just like repeatedly running. Mm-hmm. Periodic jobs. The reason Snowflake and Databricks are huge businesses is not because there are people writing new SQL queries every day. It's because people run SQL queries as jobs or like, or extract yeah. transform loads. These are all jobs that totally. periodically keep running. And then he said, okay, now what about the new queries that are being written? Even among them, majority, like more than 80%, are not actually even written in structured query language. They're just visual drag and drop in Power BI or Tableau or Metabase or all these other tools. People just like drag and drop and make new tables quickly. And then they just push it as like periodic jobs. So it's that easy now that no one's going to like be typing, oh, please make a plot for me with X and so No, it's like so much faster to just do this and drag and drop. So that's when we realize, okay, not everything's going to be revolutionized by text as the universal mm-hmm. interface, right? It may sound cool. It may sound like the next big thing. But at the end of the day, the user is never wrong. You always go for the thing that gets the job done the fastest. Mm-hmm. So then we thought, okay, there is a market in plotting and there's a, you know, like, People like to customize their plots, make different colors. But then I, I, I learn. I, I, I literally myself watch so many Tableau and Power BI tutorials on YouTube, and install these softwares and used it myself. And I realized so much easier it is that Microsoft and like like Salesforce have made these tools. That I'm like, okay, why would these people ever come back? Like, like get out of this. And if at all they want something chat UI, they probably want it within this interface, thing, mm-hmm. right? So. It was kind of like we had built so much, like, but one good thing we did is I love Twitter. So we scraped almost all of Twitter. So I thought, how would graph search look if it were done on the Twitter database? Wouldn't it be amazing if we can just find a way to get connected? Let's say Jacob is there. Let's say Jacob doesn't follow me on Twitter, but I want to DM Jacob. Mm-hmm. And Twitter doesn't allow you to DM people who, who don't fo- follow you. Then I need to find somebody who is following me and Jacob follows them too. Mm-hmm. And I can ask that person, hey, could you intro me to Jacob? So I wanted to see if, how can I find people who are like following me, but also followed by Jacob mm-hmm. and get a list and then see if I can DM some of them. Or like, if I might be just curious, like what tweets are being liked by Paul Graham that mention AI so that I want to know like what are good AI tweets. So if we built this, and we, we would show this to like a few investors and they allowed it. You know why? Because they wanted to yeah, see what other tar- people were They had a target uh, persona. <laughs> yeah, people love searching about themselves. Yeah. Actually, I showed this tool to the Instagram co-founder, uh-huh. Mike Krieger. And you know what he said first? Uh, I told him like the first searches are usually people just looking up their handles. Jacob loves to look at his own tweets. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, but I have to hack it together with that tool. But, but, like but this. here's here's a here's a uh, thing he told me is, when they launch Instagram, even though you can go to your profile by just clicking on your profile icon, mm-hmm. in the search bar, people always still search for their own handle. Huh. <laughs> so that's human behavior. So we had this, and we also had this like SQL editor kind of like enterprise tool, and we had a search that would just do summarization with links. Mm-hmm. The reason we did the third thing was because we said, okay, that's, if LLMs are going to revolutionize search, clearly, why should it just be restricted to structured data? It's going to be a lot of unstructured data too. Totally. And, and enterprises will have both too. So whether you're going to consumer or enterprise, you need both. So, and, and, and we had all three. And I had to make a decision. What do we do? Right? Like, and we decided, you know, 
look, let's launch. We put out this uh, summarization-based search first because when we had a Discord server with a few of our friends using it, everyone came and said, this is better than Google. But the honest reason is like, we built this just for ourselves. Mm -hmm. The summarization tool was just a Slack bot within Perplexity that helped me answer questions or my co-founders answer questions about like how to start a static server in Ruby, or like how to do this um, bash thing or um, how to do something in React when our React engineer was busy building something else and we wanted to build another demo. Or um, when I was getting health insurance for my first hire, I had no idea what any of these deductibles and like <laughs> co-payments are. Like all these terms seem complicated. And if I go to Google, like I just get a bunch of ads for insurance. Yeah. It was so useful to us and a few of our friends. So when, when Elon was taking over Twitter, there was no way to actually get the condensed news in any way. Or when Zuck was losing billions last year when Facebook stock was tanking, right? Like we just want to know what was going on. So it was so useful. People loved it. The citation format was cool. It was all like Slack bots and Discord bots, not even our web UI that mm -hmm. has its own like fan base of how well engineered it is. So then we got a designer. And when we shipped it and launched it, and the first day we had like so many thousands of queries coming in, that's what made me realize, okay, you know what? We're going to launch, we're going to be search-facing, consumer-facing, because it's real. People feel the excitement. It's much easier to excite someone to join your company when you're working on something that has incredible like dopamine from shipping things. Mm -hmm. And we also launched a Twitter the next week to see, okay, look, this is so fun tool to use. What if we just make it like Google Images where it's a separate tab? And that was our moment. <laughs> like we launched it and we were like, this is awesome. Twitter search never worked and now it finally does. Why didn't Twitter ship this? This is all happening during the drama time of Twitter, right? So yeah, it was yeah, perfect time, timing. Yeah. <laughs> Kimball Musk liked that and followed us and um, back then, there used to be this tech, tech alerts Twitter yeah, account yeah, that would yeah. track all these like famous people, like like all these famous people followed us. And then one crazy event happened: Jack Dorsey quote tweets our Twitter search tweet saying, "This is awesome." <laughs> and Jack had been inactive on Twitter for a while, and like because of the whole drama, and everyone gets mad at him. Look at this guy. He comes out of nowhere and tweets this. Like, what's he doing? And all this stuff, right? Elon, you should check this out. And like, so then it just keeps getting more virality. And then like tens of thousands of people are on the site at once. And we just crash, just completely crashes. <laughs> <laughs> and then what happened was, because Jack tweeted it, everybody came and searched their Twitter handle. We didn't have all the Twitter handles in our index, in our Twitter index. So we cleverly did something where we backlinked any handle that was not in the in our Twitter database to the summarization search. Mm -hmm. And what that would do is it would pull their, all their latest tweets and give like a nice summary of that person. Mm. And if they use the same handle across other social platforms, it would pull all their social media activity from every other website and give like an overall holistic summary. And that spooked people out. <laughs> that was like, how does this AI know so much about me? <laughs> and then that, they would just take screenshots of uh, at their hand uh, at their handle name and the and the perplexity summary, and they would keep tweeting this. And people would ask like, what is this AI? I want to I want to know what it says about me. <laughs> so just like how Chat GPT had its screenshot virality, we got it too. And like, I remember like last year on the winter vacation, I was like, you know what, we launched, but come on, it's just going to be hype and it's all going to die and like we're going to go back to doing enterprise. That, that was really how I thought. <laughs> and then this was like two, three days after Christmas and the usage was spiking up. I was like, okay, this is real. Like if, if people use it in the winter vacation, you know, they can go, be skiing and like chilling, right, or watching movies, but why would they have to use the AI released by some random startup that, that was unknown as raised hardly any funding, no announcements, so this was real and we said, okay, after the vacation, we all met and we're like, look, we really lucked out here. We have something cool. We have a cool small team. So let's let's go the next step. Let's make it really fully end-to-end -end conversational. And then what is conversational? A lot of other people were like, ah, I'm just going to slap a chat UI and like put some search in it. And, and then their product wouldn't even work. They would like, uh, have hallucinations. They wouldn't have sources. They wouldn't like be able to know when to use, when it's free form and it's chat and yeah. it's search. Like 
basically poor product design, just trying to capitalize on the moment. We were like, okay, what does a chat for search even mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why should it be a chat UI? Well, we always like to end our, our interviews with a kind of a quick fire round where we get yeah. your, your quick takes on a few things. Yeah. Um, the first thing I'll ask is one thing that's overhyped and underhyped in AI today. Overhyped is definitely like the whole moats. Like everyone keeps talking about it, strategizing <laughs> about it, and especially being vertical focused. I think that's really overhyped. Like I still haven't seen a thing where something AI native has been like taking over a vertical. Mm-hmm. Uh, underhyped, I would say, is more people should focus a lot on like building delightful user experiences. Like not a lot of people are focusing on that. Like I know, like we we are respected for that, but I haven't seen like too many products that do this. What's one thing you thought that would work that uh, didn't end up working in the history of perplexity? I mean, we have been lucky to have a lot of hits. One thing that didn't really take off immediately was our collections feature. It's not that it hasn't had its usage. Like a lot of people are using it, and every day, like tens of thousands of collections keep getting created. But uh, it's not become a thing where it's like the next collaborative work for research yet. Mm-hmm. And I think we know why. We have, we, have, we have to ship a lot more. Like people don't want to like manually create collections themselves and like move threads around. It all has to be automatic. That requires more like magic seamless back into work. So that's something that we understand why it didn't really truly take off yet. And in this conversation, we've talked about, obviously, how GPT-4 is in a class of its own. Yep. We've talked about how you're using your own open source models. Yep. You know, in the future, how ubiquitous do you think open source models will be? You know, uh-huh. will, will most applications be built on valuable, you know, the state-of-the-art LLM? Or do you think most will follow your path of, of switching over? Yeah, so my sense is whatever is possible today with GPT-4 will be possible without GPT-4. And will be possible at a cheaper price, faster latency, everything. But then when that happens, there will be something new that was not possible before. Like Copilot, whatever we have, is impossible to do without GPT-4. Mm-hmm. Of course, we are trying to move away from that. And like even parts of that are not running with GPT-4 anymore. But there will always be like the next Copilot, perplexity Copilot, kind of like this generative user interfaces, dynamic prompt engineering. All this stuff is never possible before. Like I think there will be a new thing that's possible suddenly. Or for that matter, really great image searches, image upload mm-hmm. and asking questions. Like people are just doing their homeworks with it now. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> <laughs> like you just scan your homework, like take a cam scanner app and scan it and upload to ChatGPT and just give yeah. you the answer. Yeah. How can you do this without GPT-4? It's pretty mind blowing, right? So I think like when the next model comes, it might be able to do things like taking actions for you. Yeah. Like basically a lot of chains of reasoning involved stuff or like multimodal reasoning that or like you can just upload a video and ask it to like exactly get you like certain things from it. I think these are all stuff that only the next generation models can do. Yeah. And you tweeted about some of the recent developments and on the regulation front. Yeah. Um, to what extent do you think AI should be like regulated and um, and how? I think regulation right now would be too premature. We haven't even seen the widespread economic benefits yet. And people are freaking out as if like, if they don't mm-hmm. act early, it's going to end up being the same story with social media or something like that. That's not how it works. And um, being thoughtful about what's going to happen in the future is important. Like nobody's saying, don't ever talk about AI safety, man. Like, uh, like, 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 like making it look uncool or whatever, but don't go o- overboard either. Like let the people who are building build like jensen huang puts it perfectly we don't know what's there to safeguard if we don't actually have anything to build like you can only build ai safety around things if you actually have built some things like why are you like making it slower now in fact like the faster and sooner we find out the faster we can fix things too this and and also the flaw with the whole ai safety and regulation argument is like when you say it's too dangerous and therefore we got to regulate you're also saying, you know, only let us do the model training, you know, like beyond this certain amount of flops, 10 to the power 26, <laughs> uh, make sure people get a license and like basically structure in a way where in order to even get there, they need to have so much funding that it's almost like impossible. And then 
that's an indirect way of saying only let us make the decisions mm-hmm. which is even more dangerous than having everybody train ais and let it go rogue on the internet because you don't want if, if something is too dangerous you want as many eyeballs on it as possible you want as many people talking about it as possible so that it's not left to like three or four rooms in the world making decisions i feel like at you know everplexy you avoid one of the coolest you know product footprints in generative ai today but if you weren't at perplexy and you could go to any other company or any other space and build generative ai products what where would you go as a employee yeah employee founder you go but completely different than what perplexity does i really like the work that leven labs and pico are doing i mean i'm i i put my own money into these companies not to like you know i'm not like trying to shield them because i'm going to you know like like i'm i have a stake in them or something but they're really cool and um I I'm a big fan of like you know AI generated movies. At some point we're going to have like for realistic voices like it, it's amazing to like have these AIs that can just talk exactly like how humans do and I mean one one particular thing that I personally want to do as a project is record my parents hmm. as much as possible. Like I want to do podcasts with them like how you're doing uh and record them like hours like maybe 2 3 hours yeah. just talk about their life and um make sure that i can talk to them if i want to i can talk to them again uh even if they're not there mm. or even if i don't have a formal conversation with them i can at least like uh type out a congrats message to myself have it be said in the voice of my mom even if she's not around right like and these are things that we all want to do it's like like just sometimes it brings our nostalgia and us emotions and same thing with movies like you know movies can like evoke a lot of feelings inspire people and the amount of effort and expertise it needs today to create a movie is so high that if the marginal cost of creation goes down tremendously through these generative ai tools i think that's going to create a great future where we can make a lot of like amazing like visualizations and illustrations to like you know explain concepts better totally and you previously worked at open ai um, yeah. they've been in the news a bit um just a bit yeah yeah uh what do you make of everything that happened and do you think there's going to be any lasting implications on the ecosystem it's hard to say like you know um definitely it seems like they have two different schools of thought there one on moving faster and one on like moving more cautiously and um definitely i think like it's not going to be the same company that's guaranteed they're not going to keep shipping things like there was the moment in developer day that where it felt like they were invincible you know you better not even be a rapper you better just write custom gpts and make money on on mm-hmm. the gpt store uh i don't think that's true anymore and there's only a limited amount of gpus in the world like you can't do everything possible you can't have the app store you can't have the first party product you can't have infrastructure you can't have enterprise and you can't keep doing the cutting edge research on the next models all at once it's pretty hard so i think they might focus on three or four of these things and and i still think they are the world's cutting edge ai organization right now but it it probably not be like oh you dare not do something because open ai will do it super interesting well this has been a fascinating conversation um I guess I'll leave the final word to you. Like where can folks go to learn more about you or perplexity or anything? Perplexity. <laughs> really, I'm not kidding. The best way to learn more about me or Jacob or Patrick or Redpoint Ventures is all perplexity. Honestly, I'm not I'm not even kidding. Like if you don't know somebody else, just go to perplexity, you get the links, you get the summaries, you get the answers, you get follow-ups like it's perfect. Well, Pat, that was a fun one. Super fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's such a fascinating guy. I feel like there's so many interesting lessons out there for uh for builders in the space totally i love the way they they think about the the model side of basically why would you build your own model you know before knowing you have a product that resonates with folks um but then long term you know not having that dependency on some other model provider and so i think the way they've they've sequenced it is is super smart totally yeah i thought it was really interesting his take on for sure starting with uh out of the box models and um you know also being i guess more optimistic about these rappers turning in rappers turning into large companies he was like that's 100% the right way to start and then you get distribution and figure the rest out later um i thought that was an interesting take especially as a founder that's so directly in 
competition with the Googles and um, Microsofts of the world. Yeah. And I like to point that, like, you know, asking about moats is almost a good problem to have. Like, that means you have, like, you should have a product that has a lot of scale and seeing a lot of users. And so, you know, so many people are, are having these moats conversations long before they've actually built anything that, that folks actually find value in. Totally. I also thought it was fascinating his how much value he's gotten from building in public. I think that was really a step function change in their the trajectory of the company. And it seemed like a lot of their momentum was from shipping things and then the viral distribution that came from that. So I thought that was just a cool case study in how much benefit there can be. Yeah, and it's amazing in, in the space how hard it can be to predict how, you know, I think when OpenAI shipped ChatGPT a year ago, it was like not totally. clearly it was going to be some crazy viral product. Similarly, it sounds like they got their product out there and then, you know, Jack Dorsey tweets about it or folks start looking at their own profiles. And, yeah. Uh, you know, especially with these consumer-facing products, I feel like, you know, just getting it into users' hands is so valuable. All of these things are so hard to build and there can be a tendency to wait for perfection before shipping things. And, uh, I think it's just interesting how much benefit they got from shipping everything they had. Even the Jack Dorsey stuff came from the Twitter product, not the search product. Right. And so, and then ultimately got them distribution for the search product. And I thought that was a, a cool story. And I love, I mean, I, I just think the vision for where this is all going is, is so cool. I mean, I love perplexity as a product. I think that was one of the reasons I was so excited for this episode. And this idea of, you know, deep knowledge work today, like Quora or Wikipedia, you know, where people go for answers and that the knowledge is there, but it just, it takes a lot of time to get that knowledge in a way that's personalized for you. Or maybe person X wants to go super deep on something. I think his examples was like black holes and, and celebrity gossip. Yeah. And people want to go to different levels of depth on both of those. And I think we definitely would want to go deeper on celebrity. Yeah. Gossip. I think both yeah, of us yeah. would be Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey, and, yeah. and probably I actually, elementary I, black holes. We needed to mention Taylor Swift. And so it was good. We got that in. Um, I think we're now four for four in the last four episodes, but I actually did try it. Taylor Swift, Travis Kelsey in perplexity. Of um, course you did. It was good background, but I do think some of these next gen search companies are still, you know, like narrowing the window of how recent the stuff is that they have indexed. So, um, yeah, area of opportunity, I guess, on the uh, Travis Kelsey, Taylor Swift queries. Yeah, they, they missed the fact that the Chiefs seem to be imploding uh, in, yeah. in lost their last few <laughs> <Yeah>. games. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, <laughs> also, I mean, a, a few other things. One thing that he brought up that I thought was fascinating is this idea that, you know, everyone's looking for a solution for retrieval augmented generation more broadly. Uh, and his take that, like, basically – Solving that problem, solving hallucinations is going to look very different depending on yeah. the end problem and that this idea that there'll be one company that's going to solve RAG across like the board. It's like he's like, look, we're really good at doing this in the consumer search context. I'm not sure that necessarily translates or works well on the enterprise side. And even drawing the search parallel to that I, I thought was really interesting. It would be interesting to know if that means it will be the same tools that are used kind of four rag solutions across everything or if there will also be a different kind of different set of tools. But – um, yeah, I thought his take that it was harder to recruit engineers than raise capital was a really interesting one and just shows how much capital there is chasing these AI companies. And, um, I also, thought we were the only ones. I didn't realize there was like an another set yeah, of Yeah, I guess, it, I guess space. there's more VCs than us looking at AI companies. Um, but it's disappointing yeah. to hear, but I know, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, I think what's so cool about their ability to recruit is there's only so many products that are really touching a ton of users today. Yeah. And, you know, I imagine, I mean, what, what cooler place to go work on, on some of this stuff than totally. right now? And I think search is kind of one of those classic hard AI problems, right? It was almost the boot, almost the first incredible machine learning application was Google. And now there's a huge opportunity for the perplexities of the world to reinvent what that looks like. So I think it would be a cool place to cool set of problems to work on yeah i mean you, you started your career working on on search right at linkedin i did work on search yeah um are we, the, are we at risk of losing you i felt like you were pretty fired up <laughs> during, that, uh, during that podcast <laughs> definitely not at risk of losing me and i'm sure that i could contribute nothing to the state-of-the-art search world now but um but search is I, I just i think the domain is fascinating you need to be fast you need to be right user expectations are incredibly high which he talked about a lot it's like you can serve this one user but then if you do that, this whole set of other users is upset. And so the, just the breadth of users that you need to address and how complicated the technical solutions are, I think it's every engineer 
would love to work on search problems. It's a really cool domain. I mean, I will say I, I, I like I got goosebumps when he was talking about, you know, using these generative speech and video models to, you know, potentially interview his parents and have that yeah. as like something that would persist, you know, uh, through time. Um, you know, I feel like we're only scratching the surface in, in, in some of those uh, some of those cool use cases. Though I will say I think that was a Black Mirror episode, too. I found myself wondering if that would be good for the world, probably. Um and I can imagine a lot of benefits, but also very strange if you could uh, persist in a way that is not natural. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that's a, a pretty crazy vision, which we are probably heading towards, uh, especially as you can generate video and generate sound and uh, generate voices. And I think that's the, the natural extension of the technology people are building today. That was Unsupervised Learning. Thanks so much for listening, and please like, comment, subscribe. Uh, we have an incredible set of guests coming up, uh, and we launched our own YouTube channel. We are really uh, getting going here, and so I think uh, you know, make sure you're, you're up to date with the latest, and we'll really look forward to having you next time. <laughs>